Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today, we return to the listener library for a suggestion from our mysterious listener and special guest, Catherine. Hello. Catherine is a generous supporter of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, and as a thank you, we invited her to join us for a discussion of an episode of her choosing. Catherine, what are we listening to today? We are listening to the 13th Sound from Suspense. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills debuted on CBS in 1942 and ran for an astounding 20 years. During that time, Suspense featured a cavalcade of stars, including one actress who became forever linked to the show. Agnes Moorhead. Her compelling performance in the suspense classic Sorry Rung Number earned her the title First Lady of Suspense, and Moorhead returned many times to the program, including today's story, The Thirteenth Sound. The Thirteenth Sound features another frequent suspense guest star, William Johnstone. Remembered today as the man who replaced Orson Welles as the shadow, Johnstone's versatile voice graced hundreds of radio episodes during the Golden Age, including some of this podcast's favorite shows. Crime Classics, Dragnet, Escape, The Mysterious Traveler, Nightbeat, The Whistler, and more. The Thirteenth Sound is a reunion of sorts between Johnstone and Moorhead, who nine years earlier shared the microphone as Lamont and Margot during Johnstone's first season on The Shadow. In addition to showcasing Moorhead and Johnstone, The Thirteenth Sound was written by old-time radio power couple Elliot and Kathy Lewis. They regularly appeared as actors on Suspense, but this was their first and only script for the program. In 1950, Elliot Lewis became the producer of Suspense, ushering the program into a new decade. And now, let's listen to The Thirteenth Sound, from radio's outstanding theater of thrills, first broadcast February 13th, 1947. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music and listen to the voices. Yes, Roma wines taste better because only Roma selects from the world's greatest wine reserves for your pleasure. That's R-O-M-A, Roma wines. Those better tasting California wines enjoyed by more Americans than any other wine. For friendly entertaining, for delightful dining. Yes, right now, a glass full would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you Agnes Moorhead in a remarkable tale of... Suspense! We were driving too fast, but I knew that if I slowed down at all, I would begin to tremble. And so, although the road was tortuous, climbing steeply up the mountain, I kept my foot pressed hard on the gas pedal. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see that my husband was looking quietly into the green valley far below. He looked peaceful now, 
He had made his speech about driving too fast. I'd asked him to be quiet. And now he was quiet. I wondered what he would do if I stopped the car and told him right then that we were driving up to the Johnson house so that I might kill him. I parked the car on the highway at the foot of the dirt road leading up to the house. We walked quickly behind the heavy trees. My husband stopped once to wipe the dust off his shoes. I hurried him on and we soon arrived at the front door. As planned, I'd forgotten the key. I did open my purse and look, however, and that gave me the opportunity to release the safety catch on the gun I had borrowed from my husband's belongings. I suggested that we try one of the windows. He agreed, and we slowly made our way through the underbrush that was growing wild at the side of the stucco building until we reached a first-floor window. The window was set high above the ground, and my husband had to stretch his body to reach it. I waited until he had his back to me, with his hands raised high in the air, reaching for the window frame. Then I opened my purse, took out the gun, aimed very carefully at a spot just in the center of his left shoulder blade, and pulled the trigger four times. He didn't fall right away. He had had his fingers over the window ledge, ready to unfasten the catch when the bullets hit him. With some terrible effort, he dug his nails into the stucco and tried to keep from dying. I couldn't move. I wanted to scream, but my throat felt paralyzed. He tried to turn his face and look at me, but he hadn't that much life left. At last, he said... I bent and looked at my husband's body. He was quite dead. I wiped off the gun, his gun, and threw it behind an acacia bush. Then I walked back to the car, slowly and carefully removing any of my footprints which showed in the loose dirt of the road. At the car, I emptied some cigarette butts from the dashboard ashtray onto the road, dusted my shoes, then turned around and drove home. I put the car in the garage, went in and had my shower, and lay down in the library to wait. A few minutes after the grandfather clock struck 11, the telephone rang. Hello? Uh, Miss Skinner? This is she. Yeah, this is Jonathan Brown, Sheriff's Office. I uh, have some bad news for you. My husband? Yes, ma'am. He's been killed. Miss Skinner? Hello, Miss Skinner. You all right? I waited quietly for a moment. Then I let the phone fall to the floor. I listened until I heard Jonathan Brown hang up. Then I replaced my telephone on its stand. Went into the kitchen for some ice, which I put in a large Turkish towel. I then arranged myself carefully and attractively on the living room divan. And waited again. Here, please. Oh, oh, yes. Thank you. You all right, Miss Skinner? I, well, that, 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 that was a stupid thing for me to do, breaking the news that way, you know. I'm all right. Well, I came over as soon as you, you know, uh, dropped the phone. Well, I, I, I felt faint suddenly. Well, ain't no wonder. 
Tell me what happened, Mr. Uh, Brown, uh, Jonathan Brown, Sheriff's Office. Mr. Brown, please sit down. Thank you. Well, your husband was up at the Johnson house this afternoon, as well as we can figure. Uh, Up there on the side of the mountain, you know. And uh, he must have been trying to get into the window. And uh, somehow, somebody, well, shot him. (sighs) I'm sure you want me to tell you. I'm sorry. Go on, please. Well, we uh, looked around the place, couldn't see anything. Though we found the, uh, you know, uh, weapon, it was a gun. Found in the brush near where he was, and uh, uh, no footprints or anything, except tire marks down the main highway and a bunch of cigarette butts where someone must have been sitting in the car, uh, waiting, you know. Those were my tire marks. You, you was up there? Well, I had an appointment to meet my husband this afternoon at the foot of the road leading up to the Johnson house. He had said that he'd had some business to attend to and would get a ride with this other person. He was very mysterious about it. And I waited for an hour or more at the foot of the road. You were so clever to recognize the meaning of those cigarette stubs. Well, he is. And when he didn't come, I thought perhaps I was mistaken about the appointment. And so I drove home. (laughs) Only to think of I Perhaps... I'd gone up to the house, I might have saved my poor dear husband's life. There, there, no, 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 terrible shock, I know. I'm all right, I'm all right, I'll be all right. Now, don't you worry about a thing, Miss Skinner. The sheriff's office will round up the guilty party or parties and have them brought to trial, you know. Yes, I'm sure. I slept well that night for the first time in ten years. My husband, during his lifetime, had snored loudly and steadily, and during his later years, he had acquired the nervous and distressing habit of grinding his teeth in his sleep. This night, all was quiet and peaceful in the house. In my house. And, as I say, I slept beautifully. The next few days were also beautifully quiet. A few photographers and newspaper men, but they were kind and gentle and didn't make too much bother. Finally, Mr. Jonathan Brown called to say that he would send a car for me on Friday morning, the next day, as it turned out, to take me to the coroner's inquest. The small courtroom was crowded, and almost everyone there eyed me with great sympathy. The inquest proceeded evenly. There was as yet no evidence as to the identity of my husband's murderer. I again stated that I had left the tire marks and cigarette stubs at the foot of the road that led to the Johnson house. No, I hadn't heard a shot. No, my dear husband had no enemy. Then... I've had this blackboard brought to court so that I might show the position of the body when found. I think it might be of interest. Uh, Very well. Proceed. The uh, body is found just below the first-story window on the left side of the house. The dead man was obviously trying to gain admittance, you know. He, uh, He didn't die immediately, as I will show you but stayed alive long enough to try to keep himself from falling, since marks from each of his fingernails were found running down the side of the building. Uh, Here, then, is the window sill, and here are the marks of his fingernails, and here is the spot where the body lay when it was discovered. And here is the house. As he talked, he watched me. Ground floor. And I didn't know why until I heard the first scrape of the chalk against the blackboard. For one awful moment, it was the sound that had been made by my husband as he tried so desperately to hold himself alive. I found myself tightly holding the wooden table in front of me. 
Hands and body tense. Trying not to faint. Since a large deposit of the dried stucco from the building was found under each of the victim's fingernails, I I believe I can best illustrate the manner of the victim's last moments with a physical illustration. Uh, suppose I am the victim, you know, and uh, this blackboard is the side of the building. We hear the gunshots, and then the victim slowly sinks to the ground. Oh, please. Please, I can't, sir. Please, don't. Don't make it. For suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Agnes Moorhead in the 13th Sound. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of suspense, this is Ken Niles for Roma Wines. Tomorrow, on Valentine's Day, delight your Valentine with a gift that's smart, lavish, and in perfect taste. Say it with Roma Champagne, traditional wine of romance. Brilliant, bubbling Roma Champagne is an unforgettable token of your thoughtfulness. For pale gold, sprightly dry Roma California Champagne, made by the world-famous Charmotte bulk process, is sparkling wine at its finest. Yes, to make any golden moment live forever, say it with Roma Champagne. And remember, you enjoy an exclusive difference, a better taste in Roma Champagne. For Roma crushes only the choicest grapes, especially selected for fine champagne. Then Roma Vintner's unmatched skill, the magic of necessary time, and America's finest winemaking resources guide this grape treasure to rare taste luxury. Finally, from the famed Roma Champagne cellars to you comes better-tasting Roma Champagne. So this Valentine's Day, say it with Roma. Roma Champagne, golden masterpiece of Roma, the greatest name in wine. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood sound stage Agnes Moorhead as Mrs. Sally Skinner and William Johnstone as Jonathan Brown in the 13th Sound. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I must have been taken home from the inquest. For the next consciousness I had, I was lying on the guest bed. In the corner sat Mr. Jonathan Brown. He must have seen my eyes open. Ah, feeling better? Yes, thank you. I'm... Terribly sorry. Oh, it's all right. Quite a strain, you know. Yes, it was quite a strain. And Cohen asked whether it'd be all right to go on without you. Everybody seemed agreed, you know, so uh, he finished up while the doc looked you over. What happened? Oh, he said you'd be all right. Shock. I meant about uh, my husband. Mm, and his death, the hand of persons, uh, persons unknown, you know. Is there anything further I must do? Mm, not a thing, Miss Skinner. It's been very kind. Well, it's... Terrible thing happened to you. Well, I'll be going now, if there's nothing more you need from no, me. No, nothing, thank you. Well, goodbye then, and uh, don't you worry. We'll find who did it, you know. Mm -hmm. 
After he had left, I had the time to be angry at myself for my behavior at the inquest. What must the people have thought? To fade only from the noise of a piece of chalk on a blackboard? I wondered if Mr. Brown had suspected anything, because as I remembered back to earlier afternoon, he had been watching me as he drew those silly little diagrams on the board. He hadn't been looking anywhere else. Not at the coroner, or at any of the reporters, nor even at what he was doing. He'd been looking at me. Well, of course he was looking at me. He was showing his sympathy. I slowly allowed myself to return to my former position in the community. I was able now to do the things I'd always wanted to do but had been restrained from doing by a certain attitude of my husband. He had never liked entertaining. He didn't believe that we should belong to the country club and take a civic pride in the fact that our home was the largest and most beautiful in the community. In fact, it was his desire to sell our lovely home that caused me to finally take that complete and drastic step. The first evening that I accepted an outside invitation was for one of the Wednesday night evenings of bridge at our club. At my table with the president of the bank and his wife. As I sat down, I noticed that a window pane on my left yeah, was shattered. Good evening, Miss Gray. Miss Gray. Uh, well, good evening, Miss Gray. Good evening, Miss Skinner. Good evening, Mr. Brown. Well, I'm afraid I'm the culprit here. <laughs> uh, playing ball with the kids this afternoon, and I threw one right through your lovely window. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Right, but I got old Sam here. I brought him along with a new painted glass, and he'll fix us up ship shape in no time at all. Uh, go ahead, Sam. Right hey, over yes, there. Yes, Mr. Brown. Sure. Don't mind me, folks. I'll be through here in just a jiffy. Don't worry about it. Oh, um, incidentally, Miss Skinner, I. Always meant to ask you whether or not you minded noises, uh, especially. Uh, sharp noises, like, you see, uh, chalk on a blackboard. I don't understand. Chalk on a blackboard? Uh, at the inquest, I, I always wondered about it. Uh, you faded just when the chalk was scratching across the blackboard. I don't remember hearing it. I'm afraid I fainted before you drew any diagram. I think that's what you were planning to do, uh, draw a diagram. That's what I was planning to do, yes, ma'am. Yes. Does he have to do that? There's something wrong, Mrs. Skinner? Does he? Does he have to do that? Yeah, I, Mrs. Skinner. I can't. I can't. I didn't have to. I stayed at home for the next few days. I canceled all appointments. The heat really was unbearable. In October, I resumed my activities. I began to see people again. I grew especially interested in chamber music. Through my activity, I arranged a musical evening to be given by a group of which I was the second vice president. They planned the formation of a Philharmonic Society eventually. I went to the musical alone, and I was studying my program when... Uh, is this seat taken? Good evening, Mr. Brown. Well, Miss Skinner, good evening. Didn't recognize you, ma'am. Well, I, I was to be joined later. Well, I, I'll just sit here a moment, then. You know, I, I'm terribly sorry about the other night. Well, it's really nothing at all for you to be sorry about. Very kind of you to say that, you know, but I, I do feel guilty as all sin, being the cause of getting sick like oh, that. Oh, really, Mr. Brown? I wasn't sick at all. Well, I... Mr. Gregg told me I'd probably been affected by the heat. It was very close in the club that night, if you'll remember. Well, yes, yes, well, it was. Well, just so I don't feel it was my oh, fault, you know. No, I don't want you to feel that it was your fault. That's uh, very kind of you, you know. Uh, if you don't mind, I, I'll stay here until whoever holds the seat gets yes, it, all right? Uh, we, uh, we crave uh, your indulgence and a 
certain open-mindedness uh, for giving a fair chance to the first piece uh, with which uh, we are going to open our, our program uh, this evening. The title of this piece uh, is The Thirteenth Sound, and uh, the composer is young uh, uh, Julian Carillo. Uh, and this piece, because of the unorthodox nature of it, uh, created a veritable furor in New York City uh, some weeks ago on the occasion of its uh, its uh, premiere. It's it's what you'd call, I guess, modern music. <laughs> uh, and uh, the really unusual thing about it is that the instruments, uh, instead of playing as they usually do in uh, Mozart, uh, Hayden, and, and such classical veins, uh, play in quarter tones. Uh, now, a quarter tone is somewhere in between uh, the other tones, uh, such as the uh, we are accustomed to hearing. Uh, so on this uh, following piece, uh, the instruments are not playing, uh, as you would think, out of tune. Uh, uh, this is the way it is supposed to sound. Uh, thank you. So now, now the uh, various members of the quartet will tune their various instruments into these quarter tones, uh, uh, and this is quite a short piece, uh, but I know you're going to like it. Uh, tune up, gentlemen. Well, this uh, should be very interesting. You think so, Miss Skinner? Thirteenth sound. <laughs> Have you heard it? Uh, no, no, I haven't. <sighs> Uh, it's too hot again, Miss Skinner. It, it does get stuffy in here. Oh, I'm not. Uh, it, it's hot in here. Mm, terribly painted. You show me. Your... I'm quite all right. Uh, excuse me. Uh, will, will you let me out? I am. Will you please? Thank you. I left Mr. Brown sitting there. My man drove me home. I never liked modern music. I locked all the doors and I turned on all the lights. And then I did a foolish thing. I found a hammer and a piece of board. And I beat and beat and beat and beat on the board with a hammer as hard as I could. And finally, the heavy, steady, safe pounding that I made drove the other sharp, shrill, awful noise from my mind. Then I turned out all the lights and opened the windows and went to sleep. I didn't sleep well, but I didn't stay awake either. I hadn't set the alarm next to my bed and when I first awoke the next morning, for a minute I couldn't remember what had happened. I felt drugged. I got out of bed and put on the lovely chartreuse brocade housecoat and started downstairs. Sun was shining outside. It was a beautiful day. Not the sort of day when you could be disturbed by unrelated noises. I felt grand when I got downstairs. Then I heard... What? I didn't know. I didn't care. I knew only that I had to stop it before it happened to me again. Stop it! Please, stop it! Huh? Pardon me, Miss... Get out of here! Get out of here! Who told you to do your work here? Did someone tell you to make that noise near my house? Why, no, ma'am. The lawnmower darn thing wasn't cut, and I had to... Get shut... out! Go on! Get off this property at once! Yeah, yes, ma'am. Go! Sure. Don't I, I don't didn't know. Come I didn't back, mean... you hear? Don't ever come back! Don't! Morning, Miss...
Fish, Skinner. Lovely day. I turned and ran. Right back to my living room. I stood shivering there in a the beam of sunlight. I waited for him to come bursting into the room after me. I waited. And then the doorbell rang. Who is it? It's Mrs. Gray. Oh, just a moment. Come in. What, did I disturb you? Oh, no, no. Well, then I all. will come in. But I can only stay a minute. Would you like some coffee? Oh, no, thank you. When I was so sick, you remember, the doctor absolutely forbid me having any more coffee. Oh, I... I didn't know that. Oh, uh, sit down, please. Uh, do you drink much coffee? Like, no, why do you ask? Well, I thought perhaps your recent attacks might have been caused by that. Mr. Gregg is a great one for aspirin and salt tablets. I think it's much simpler than that. Cut out coffee. Well, I... I... I think my attacks were just caused by this heat. I, I planned sea voyage. Oh, how splendid. That'll certainly fix you. Sorry. You know, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, heaven knows. But perhaps on the boat, you might meet a fine young man who... Well, well perhaps. Oh, when do you plan to leave? Uh, this afternoon. I'm leaving for New York. Oh, you can't. Pardon? For the clubhouse, the unveiling ceremonies of this afternoon. Oh, I forgot. Well, you simply can't leave. Well, we have no one who can replace you on the speaker's platform. Oh, well, I... Well... Well, all right then, Mrs. Gregg. I I'll stay for the ceremony. I drove to the new clubhouse with Mr. and Mrs. Gregg. The building was really very lovely. It was almost ready for occupancy. We were unveiling a heroic figure which graced the entranceway. Our speaker's platform was built alongside the figure, and quite a few of the members and their families were sitting on the wooden benches in the front patio, waiting for the ceremony to begin. Isn't this exciting? Oh, yes, yes, very. These ladies have done a marvelous job. Oh, thank you, thank you. Ah, what's that fellow doing up there? Well, where? See, up on the roof there, that's oh. Me. oh, yes. Makes me nervous to see people at such heights. Awfully close to the edge. I guess he knows his business, I imagine. Yes, I suppose he... I'm very anxious to hear your little talk, Mrs. Skinner. Well, thank you. Thank I you. think you've managed admirably since you're unfortunate. Well, you understand. Yes, yes, thank you. Well, I think we should get on with it, eh? Well, I, I believe it'll be only a few more minutes. <laughs> what? what is it? What oh, is good it? heavens, look, that workman. He's going to fall. Can't someone catch him? He's hanging on the ledge. Oh. Some of the men are running up there now. But well, they've got to catch him. Oh, they will, they will. They've got to catch him. What? Oh. He's falling. Oh, no. Oh, turn no. your eyes, ladies. Turn your eyes. Oh. Oh, I, oh, I what? did it. I did it. Why, nonsense. I did Skinner, it. You had nothing to do with it. I did it. I did it. I did it. I did it. Why? I did not it. hurt at all. I did no. it. I did oh, it. Oh, you're not well. Yes. Yeah. Let me take it away. Oh, listen to me. Listen to me. She 
sign it, Jonathan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shame. Yeah. People do funny things. Yeah. Did you pay the fella? Mm-hmm. He's clever. Very clever. Sure is. I really thought he was falling off of that building. Hmm. Used to be an acrobat. Oh. Say, so how did he make that noise? Yeah. Holding tenpenny nails in his hands. Scraped them along the face of the building as he slid down. Yeah, did you think of that, too? Mm-hmm. Made an awful racket. Mm-hmm. Pity. Nice lady, you know. Yeah. What the devil are you doing? Hmm? Oh, uh, fixing my nails, I guess. Well, cut it out, will you? Sure. What's the matter with you? That noise makes me nervous, I guess. You know? <laughs> Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. R-O-M-A. Roma, America's favorite wines. This is Ken Niles returning for a curtain call with a brilliant star of tonight's suspense play, Agnes Moorhead. Apparently, Agnes, you're not superstitious. Accepting the lead in a play called The Thirteenth Sound on February 13th? <laughs> Superstitions are no phobia with me, Ken, but I do have one. What is it? <laughs> I refuse to give a party for 13 people. Yes, but even a 13th guest is in luck, Agnes, when you serve Roma Port. Ruby red, fragrant, nectar-sweet Roma California Port adds warmth to the welcome for everyone. And Roma Port is so easy to serve. You simply pour and hospitality reigns. Yes, Ken, Roma Port does make entertaining a pleasure. Not only that, Agnes, there's a difference you can taste in all Roma wines. And this better taste begins with the choicest grapes in all California. Then Roma's unmatched skill and winemaking resources guide these luscious grapes unhurriedly to tempting taste perfection. Later, Roma places this rich taste treasure with Roma wines of years before. And finally, Roma selects from the world's greatest wine reserves for your pleasure. Well, it's easy to see why Roma wines taste better, Ken. Yes, Agnes, and here's the most conclusive proof of all. A gift basket of Roma wines for you and your guests to enjoy with the compliment of Roma, the greatest name in wine. I'm delighted, Ken. Thank you very much. And good night. Tonight's suspense play was written by Kathy and Elliot Lewis. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Anne Baxter as star of Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. Stay tuned for the thrilling adventures of the FBI in peace and war following immediately over most of these stations. In the coming weeks, Suspense will present such stars as James Stewart, William Bendix, Eddie Bracken, and others. Make it a point to listen each Thursday to Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. This is CBS the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was The 13th Sound, 
from Suspense here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And we are joined by our generous Patreon supporter, Catherine. Once again, hello, Catherine. Hello, Eric. I love that. Yes, please do not say hi to the other two. I am, <laughs> I am what matters. Uh, and the others? Yeah. So, <laughs> Professor Marianne, thank, thank you for you. joining us. Uh, Hello, Eric and the others. Is that, is that better? That's, yes. That yeah. actually fills me with great joy. All right. So, you picked this for your guest appearance here on our podcast. Why did you pick the 13th sound from Suspense? So I, I did this for a couple of reasons. One, I, I love Agnes Moorhead um, as a radio actor. I also thought she was awesome on Bewitched, but her voice is just lovely to me. I like hearing it. I think she does great things with it. So I was keen to find something that she was in. And I picked this one for the second reason that it is unfortunately a stereotype of the clever, independent woman being a complete psychopath but I thought she did a very good job with it. And third, most importantly, I picked this because the main character is the sound. It is actually the Foley that runs through the entire episode from the very first second right up until that last bit at the end with William Johnstone saying that he doesn't like noise. Mm. So in, in a capsule, those are the three reasons I picked it. My first question for everybody is, have I heard or seen this somewhere before? Either I've heard this episode <laughs> of Suspense or I've seen it on television. Or why does this seem so familiar? I think it's because this is essentially Columbo meets the Telltale Heart. <laughs> well, yeah. Only told with a sound, as Catherine was describing, in such a spectacularly interesting and, I think, complex way. My guess is that somewhere down the line... I listened to this uh, episode of Suspense, and I kind of forgot. So I was just going to ask you guys in case you said, yes, Eric, we've uh, done this story ten times, much like the Signalman, <laughs> and uh, you're an idiot. It was redone by Suspense in 1951 with, I think it was Ann Baxter, but it's not a very good uh, production, in my opinion. I have yet to find anything that Agnes Moorhead's ever done, and that includes Bewitched. I'm with you. I'm so with you that I've yet to find anything that she doesn't really excel at. And I enjoy it greatly. So that helps. I thought that it succeeded in something that I knew what was coming. This falls into that category of, oh, the telltale heart. That's how I was going to start this conversation. There's a lot of tropey uh, mysteries and suspense uh, stories done where the person is guilt ridden into admitting their guilt. And, at this, at that point, then you say, well, that's okay. How well was it done? I agree with you totally. This is not about a surprise twist. Essentially, in the court scene when he is scratching on the chalkboard with the chalk and she nearly faints, you know where this is headed. It is an inevitability that she is going to crack. Uh, but I don't think that's meant to be hidden from the listener. I think it is very much wearing its influence on its sleeve. And the joy of this episode is the little surprises in each escalating step in the soundscape that is created to terrorize her and the listener. That's what I love so much, because these are all terrible sounds. 
a lot of them made me writhe a little bit. Uh, so in that way, you could relate to this killer. And I think that structure in and of itself makes this quite appealing. There's many things that jumped out for me, but the Foley was amazing because it was definitely like in my teeth, in my spine, hearing these sounds and just like, we're going to do this for a half an hour. Settle in. You're in for this. We've discussed on the show most of the things that are wrong with me and all of the weird, <laughs> weird things that I have in my life that make a daily living a torture. And I have to add the other, another one to the list. Chalk on a chalkboard is not something I can deal with. I can't hear it. And I don't mean nails on a chalkboard. I mean just chalk on a chalkboard. I can't stand the touch of chalk. I can't stand the feel of it, <laughs> the sound it makes. So I'm with you, uh, possibly for a different reason, that yes, the Foley with the chalk was real and disturbing and difficult, but not in an enjoyable way at all. Like I was thinking, hey, yeah, you're doing a great job of telling this story. <laughs> I was like, please get beyond this. Move on. I'm just really glad there were no heartbeats. Didn't you admire the effect it had on you, though? Like, this yeah. just reaches out of the speaker and it drags you kicking and screaming into it. And it's not just the sound effects. I mean, that opening scene is exhilarating. The way it crossfades from the suspense music into these screeching tires. And they are timed and designed to echo all the sharp staccato sounds that are going to happen throughout the entire rest of the episode. Um, and then Gus goes right into that narration with her talking about she wanted to slow down, but she couldn't because she'd start trembling. And it, she wonders what's going to happen if she pulled over and told her husband that she was about to kill him. And that's like 30 seconds into the script. And it is so well performed. It's beautiful. Yeah, got to the castle, that's for sure. Yeah, oh yeah, we were in the castle right off. Uh, the, the screech of the tires in the very beginning, which is, I think, actually how, it, if I'm recalling correctly, how it actually opens with that first screech before there's any narration at all, is yeah. the same screech that you get throughout the rest of the episode, just in slightly different variations. And including, she's fine with it in the opening scene, but she can't handle uh, it later. So. Including her screaming. Oh, yeah. Her screaming was a laugh riot. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I, let me repeat. I think it's really cool, Josh. I think that it, it. what I'm trying to say is that that had more of an effect on me than I think a normal human being. <laughs> I think that was totally conscious of like, we are going to make people squirm. So I'm not alone. Other people hate chalk on chalkboard. Everyone has a sort of variation on that. I never want to tell mine because then people will know. And I promise to edit it out. Just tell us. Like, <laughs> it's it's cutting cardboard. Oh. Like just every once in a while if you're cutting cardboard and you hit that squeak, it's just Gah! my high school girlfriend couldn't take uh metal on teeth. Yep. So I had to relearn how to eat. So that I, I would not scrape a fork across my teeth when I ate. <laughs> I thought you were eating like a bowl of nuts not and like, bolts. So I was eating and then she <laughs> smacked me so hard that I had to <laughs> relearn how to use basic human functions. I've gotten off topic. <laughs> No, no, let's go back to this. So she hit you? No! <laughs> she would just look really mad at me if I put a fork in my mouth with food on it and then did, did not gently remove the food without using my teeth. Yeah, I'm glad you're out of that one. 
<laughs> I'm just saying everyone has some variation of chalk yes. on a chalkboard. My point being, Josh, was I think I was pulled out a little bit more than normal, like than what they were hoping for when I was just like, I, I wasn't going, oh, yeah, that's wow. This is really good. I was like, oh, my God, please stop. Please stop. Please stop. And then when it did, I was fine. Chalk sounds really bother me, but I'm like a Ugh. grown man. I don't need to leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> then it doesn't really bother you. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, I'm in agreement that uh, Agnes Moorhead's performance is is incredible. I think the range she gets out of this character and just the intensity and power she can do that's that's her stick. She's great. I don't mean to be dismissive about it, but I also like, yeah, she's great, um, which is being dismissive about it. Anyways, lots of the elements of the story, but one of my favorite parts was the speech by the musician, the introductory speech yes. to this, the <laughs> hilarious tone, the stuttering, the the ums, those little interstitial ums, ums, and then the cherry on top was, it. I'm sure you're all going to like it. Yes. <laughs> no, I thought the cherry on top was he got done uh, prepping them. And I want to go back for, in a second to how odd it was for me. But he preps them for how terrible this is going to be. <laughs> and somehow got applause. <laughs> all right, this is going to be terrible. Horrible thing coming. And then they all clapped. And I went, wow, are they clapping because it's soon done? I mean, could we do a show where we intro like, ladies and gentlemen, People hate this. People hated this in New York. They've hated this all across the country. So you just said all of that way too fast. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. Isn't that a weird delivery though? That's an I loved choice. it. Well, of yes. course, but what's the point of it? It reminds you that in every TV show, movie, radio show, and there's like a community event or a wedding where someone gives a speech and everyone suddenly has the power of an actor this was a community event and they applauded for him because hey that's bob he's doing his best to uh, introduce this act he is not a professional mc he is not um an actor and obviously they exaggerate it for that reason but that i thought was what but, was so fun about it and it was funny because it also set up their disdain for experimental music because like <laughs> Hey, I'm just a, a regular guy who never talks in a microphone and hates art. <laughs> I may be going too far with this, but what's the point for moving the story forward to have that character doing that? It's just one more audio version of grading. <laughs> okay. Good sell, Tim. Now I'm on board. He's grading as well. Okay. Yep. Now that makes sense. Everything's grading. And I'm actually not just being cute there because there is the running theme of I was like, as far as we know, like why she killed her husband? Because he snores and grinds his teeth. Yes. I she say was... he's developed an irritating habit of grinding his teeth. Also, wasn't it he sold the house? That was the impetus of the murder. But the first thing she thinks about once he's gone, she says she had the first restful night of sleep in 10 years and she talks about his snoring and grinding his teeth. So that whole theme of sound is woven from the first moment to the last moment of the entire script. This is doing nothing to assuage my fears that my wife is going to kill me. <laughs> I am a noisy mess, and she does not sleep. <laughs> You'll have to learn how to eat differently. <laughs> 
but back to one of uh, Catherine, your earlier points about the type of character uh, Miss Skinner is. She is an atypical old time radio female protagonist. I mean, I guess she isn't the protagonist. She's the criminal. Arguably, uh, William Johnstone is the protagonist, but uh, the person who you live with in that they're usually either femme fatales or hysterical women. And she falls way outside that. So I found that interesting and more appealing. And her moments of hysteria, we are shown why she would have that. It's a very grotesque description of her husband and that sound of his nails on the stucco and him twisting and slowly trying to turn his head to look at her i relate when she screams in that moment it doesn't feel like a gendered scream right right agreed and i i also had a question at some point when i was listening to this uh the first time about whether all of the noises that she's hearing all of the william johnstone coming around and saying hey let me introduce you to that yet another noise is actually just happening in her mind right up until the very last scene where Johnstone is clearly setting her up, but the rest of it is, I think, as, as you've spoken about on, on the show before, the amount of effort required for the entire community to effectively gaslight her seems <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> so I do think that she is an unusual character in that respect. And also that female murderers in old time radio aren't usually this smart um, right. when she goes through exactly what she's going to do to get him up to the house she's taken his gun she she dumps the cigarettes out that was a beautiful sound effect of the cigarettes were being dumped out on the road um and you have actually done a, a more than one episode this year about really smart women who get gaslit and ultimately run around screaming i did it i did it but it, it just strikes me as a very interesting way interesting in quotation marks of of how you are portraying a, a driven, intelligent, independent female who has to be fooled into confessing that she did it, unlike with men who in old time radio, who there's a, you know, the determined detective will actually find the clues to, to get. Um, that's a vast oversimplification, but it is something that I've been thinking about lately. I think that's in the, the other half of the genre that Josh mentioned at the top of how much of a gradation is this? This is Telltale Heart versus Columbo, which in my in my thinking, like she is the protagonist. The detective is the antagonist in the same way that Columbo is the antagonist of his own stories. And how much did he know from the get go of like this guy's murdered 90 percent chance it's the spouse uh, and just start from that point of view, even with no evidence, just like that's the odds. It's a and, pretty horrific way of getting her to confess, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like Columbo, it gets more and more theatrical and elaborate and more and more bordering on harassment. Um, if she were not guilty, you would start to question uh, whether he had any right to do this. Um, and back to your point about these type of stereotypes, I think it's interesting that the script seems to acknowledge it at the top in that they have... Agnes Moorhead's character act out the way she's expected to react. Um, she fakes fainting on the phone uh, with Mr. Brown um, and then arranges herself carefully and attractively on the divan, you know, and so she's playing this uh, distraught, attractive woman trope 
at the top. And then the irony being, and in the inquest, she experiences the symptoms she had previously faked. So it feels like this nice uh, acknowledgement of what's expected to happen. She plays, seemingly plays the detective character, and then he turns the tables again. So like I said, I think it is tropey and simple on the surface, but it is deceptively simple. If you start digging into the script, there's just a lot going on. And then there's that great um, Lady Macbeth audio moment when she runs home from the uh, concert and just starts hammering the audio equivalent of washing her hands so that she can have this clean, clear, controllable sound to push out the shrill screeching. It shows you how much the Lewises are taking this idea of making sound, the as you said, Captain, the main character, and they just make sure it is woven in some new and interesting way into each and every scene. It's the only script they did for suspense. Did they do any other ones, Joshua? I thought I read, and I can't remember which series they wrote one more script together. It might have been for their own program, which was... Uh, Elliot and Kathy Lewis Presents or something. It was a variety show that ran concurrently with uh, Crime Classics and Broadway as My Beat. It was like Elliot Lewis's most busy period in his life, I think. He was doing three radio shows at once. I, I did uh, wonder about the script writing. Again, we've talked about how sound is the main character in this, but it is. it seems to me that it is a script very much written for people who know radio acting and what it takes to make a successful radio show. Because that's one thing that really jumped out at me the kind of second or third time I went through listening to this about how very focused it was on how the actors are interacting with the sound, how the sound is driving the story, how the voices are carrying the sound and things of that nature. Yeah, it's really sophisticated in that way. And I think it's a shame that they didn't write more. Or maybe they wrote a bunch more and they were terrible and these were the only ones that got <laughs> produced. <laughs> uh, the, the last thing I wanted to say about Agnes Moorhead's character was that she was an interesting form of unreliable narrator in that she was just bad at it. You knew she was deceiving herself, but uh, in her narration, she continually said things like, oh, he was just looking at me at the inquest out of sympathy. And oh... I, I didn't faint out of guilt. It was the heat. And so I just stayed in for the rest of the summer and came out for this concert in October. And, and so it was an, an interesting tweak on that narrator character who's lying so badly that we as the listener just know she's full of it. Yeah, it's a fine line between, you know, what is being done to her on purpose and when you're that guilt-ridden, a lot of normal noises could be... Uh, interpreted by her as you know manifestations of her guilt so you know how much of this is is happenstance or set up and as you said <laughs> entire community helping gaslight her as opposed to just noise bothering her in general because she in the deep recesses of her mind is uh reliving that horrible moment when he hung on to the stucco a little too long and i think that's very intentional to play that line in this script because you go through all the paranoid steps that she goes through. It kind of culminates in that second to last scene with the guy fixing the lawnmower. Because at first, he's just this guy next door or across the street, wherever he is. And it seems like 
it's totally disconnected from Brown. And then suddenly he walks by and just says hello. I start to feel her level of panic at that moment where it's just like, you can't, you can't escape this guy. She was wearing a lovely chartreuse brocade house coat, however. <laughs> nice <detail>. Guilty! <laughs> exactly. Who isn't? <laughs> I just, I did love all these little details in the, in the script where, where she talks about, as you said, Joshua, arranging herself attractively, but she wrapped some ice in a Turkish towel. She, she put on her lovely chartreuse brocade house coat. Uh, she's the second vice president of the Chamber yeah. Music Association. It's the, the wonderful little bits of detail that make it realistic, but also give you a really good idea of what kind of character she is. Also, all of that sets you up to make her unlikable for you to wish and root against her because it exposes her privilege. I I think it's on purpose to put that kind of language in there so that you realize how shallow she is. Doesn't she refer to that? She has a man, but never like goes into any more detail than just, I have a man for. Right. I think it's, it ends up being a little more complex. I mean, you're right, is in she is privileged, but because she had no control over what to do with that wealth, um, she wanted to use it in a different way than her husband did. And her husband just seemed more like he wasn't virtuous, just lazy and didn't want to bother with any of that stuff and, and, and didn't want her to do it because he didn't want to do it. So it was tempered by the fact that she had no, no power to change things Um I'm not saying, so her only choice was murder. Uh, But it makes her feel more of a a human character while, yes, uh, also uh, not making you too sympathetic. It's that that perfect fine line. There's no greater display of her privilege, I feel, than explaining, like, I have plans to go abroad, being told, no, you have a thing this afternoon, and her saying, okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If I'm traveling to different continents... Like, uh, I can't change plans that day, really. No. <laughs> no. Well, is there any other thoughts that people have on this before we uh, send it to a vote? Curious if any of you guys made it through the Roma port product placement at the end of the episode. Oh, yeah. Yes. Again, this is, I'm just a big fan of Agnes Moorhead's. Ken kind of gives her the gift basket of wine and she said, and she gives this little delighted noise. Yes, you could just yes. barely hear it. Her. She knows this is coming. Right. And right. <laughs> oh, if she was handed Ken, anything, right? yeah, she would, but she, the way she said, I'm delighted. Ken was like, can we please just end this commercial right now? So right. I'm out of here. <laughs> I just loved I just it. Did it just did a show. Right. She's like, I'm delightfully terrible. sober, Ken. <laughs> right. <laughs> can we it's wrap this up? I Ken, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I can buy good wine. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to do the tiniest little bit of research for this recording, and I, it is not fruitful. Uh, but in related to that uh, unlucky 13 guests at a, at a party, I had been told once that in, in France at some point there was a group called the Couture's Club. Couture's being French for 14, that if you were having dinner and some number of guests canceled so that you were down to 13 guests, that was so unlucky. This club existed to send a 14th person out to have dinner with you at a moment's notice. That is a good gig. That would be awesome. <laughs> and it'd be nice just to when you're throwing a party, let's get one random person that none of us know. Just invite 12. <laughs> 
and then you'll never have that problem unless someone brings a buddy and then yeah. you're like oh thanks gotta call the guitars club Right. Speaking of 13, we never even talked about the music nerdery going on in here. I don't want to talk about it in depth, mainly because I don't know much about it. But Julian Carrillo is a Mexican composer. The 13th sound was a theory of microtonal music, or he was the name most associated with it. So uh, Google uh, his music and it is really uncomfortable it seems like i'm sure you're gonna like it (laughs) yes (laughs) see tim that's how research works (laughs) i looked at two pages of google results two wow that's very interesting though like i said there's so much in this great episode in my opinion but i would say that wouldn't i well perfect timing let's send it to the vote then well there was nothing very um, surprising about what happened, which is usually not a great place for me to be. <laughs> uh, I found it just wonderfully uh, interesting and definitely stands the test of time. Therefore, I think it's a, it's a classic piece of radio. Uh, I will be on the same page. I, I will call this a classic episode of radio. It was uh, written and produced with a lot of integrity there's a lot of structure in there that uh, really shines through and contributes all to the same goal. I think it draws from classic sources, that being uh, Telltale Heart, uh, without being just like a rehash. It carries that theme and structure forward in a new and interesting way. Uh, and I'm not being flippant when I say it. it's like a precursor to Columbo structure. I think it's um, very much there and... Well, ahead of its time. Uh, So, yes, classic. I'm going to be boring and say classic, too. I mean, it is a great production. It is a shrewd, knowing, literate script that just drops you right into the action and then has enough confidence to just ease off that gas pedal and let the rest of it be this slow burn that leaves both the killer and the listener kind of writhing as each new sound is deployed against you. Um, And I do think it has surprises. It's just they're all small surprises in escalation and sound and in things like that MC. The surprises to me come with the, the commitment to their goal and the success uh, of that goal uh, to just make this a a showcase of what radio can be and all of its strengths. Uh, and they do have the advantage. I know Catherine mentioned a later production isn't as good. Uh, this one has the advantage of just having this powerhouse group of people in the form of Kathy and Elliot Lewis and William Johnstone, who's so good as this affable, seemingly unserious detective uh, from the sheriff's department and of course Agnes Moorhead is brilliant so yeah you just can't lose with this this is one of my new favorite old time radio shows so thank you Catherine and Catherine I know you brought it but your vote oh my vote total classic stands the test of chalk on the chalkboard (laughs) I first listened to this it's probably two or three years ago and you learn in the first 15 seconds that she's about to kill her husband. So there's a real shock there. And then as the sound unravels throughout the rest of the episode and really drives towards that ending, I just think it's an incredible piece of radio. And uh, I find it haunting. I can't, there are parts of this that I cannot listen to. I have to actually turn down the sound. Right. So 
classic stands the test of time. Um, and Agnes Moorhead, who, uh, as we've all said multiple times, is just a brilliant, brilliant voice actress. That is correct. Speaking of brilliant, Tim, tell him stuff. Hey! Oh, thanks. Uh, please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. That is the home of this podcast. You will find other episodes there. Uh, you will also find polls. You can vote in and let us know what you think of these episodes. You can leave comments. You can send us messages. You can link to our social media pages. You can link to our Threadless store and buy some swag. I think we're going to have some new swag here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Talk about that later. Um, and you can also link to our Patreon page. Yes, go to patreon.com slash the morals and become a patron just like Catherine. Uh, it's a lot of fun, isn't it, Catherine? It's a lot of fun, Joshua. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. We have all sorts of great uh, opportunities for patrons. You could be on the podcast like Catherine. You can join us for our Zoom happy hours and for my Zoom book club Uh I know, Catherine, we're struggling to make our times line up for people who are in the UK, and eventually we will do that uh, Zoom happy brunch. Uh, So (laughs) we can include all of our overseas listeners. So we're working on it. Uh, But yeah, so just if you'd like to join us, go to patreon.com slash the morals. I love that Catherine just became your Gracie Allen. (laughs) (laughs) hey if you'd like to see us performing old time radio shows and audio drama live on stage we are performing somewhere every month and have been for many years you can find out what we are performing and we do a lot of classic old time radio shows and a lot of our own original audio drama you can find out what we're doing this month by going to ghoulishdelights.com or go to mysteriousoldradiolisteningsociety.com and there you will see links to uh, how to find tickets and find out what we're doing and where and uh, if you can't make it well if you're a Patreon like Catherine Allen, Catherine Gracie Allen uh, then you are uh, able to watch them because you're a Patreon we record them for you so there's two ways you can see us performing live all right. Uh, what is coming up next? Next is your pick, Eric. Oh, that's right. I remember we're going to do uh, an episode <laughs> of Dark Venture called The Hideout. Until then. Look out! Uh, and, and now we, we would like to present for uh, listeners who, who are interested, uh, Julian Carrillo... Uh, and his 13th sound uh, ensemble of Havana uh, with uh, Mr. Carrillo's composition uh, Prelude to Christopher uh, Columbus. Uh, It's it's an appropriately uh, eerie uh, and distressing piece uh, which which demonstrates uh, his uh, c- commitment to uh, microtonal uh, theories of music I know you'll like it